So, Father God, we thank you um, that, that, that you have left us the record of your heart, your words, your actions in Scripture. God, we thank you that, uh, that you are teaching us um, even today. And Lord, as you said in other parts of Scripture, that you would give us your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to teach us and to guide us and remind us of you. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to do that today in this moment, that you would quicken our hearts, that you'd sharpen our minds, and that you would purify us so that we, as we encounter the record of what you, God, have done, that we would be transformed by it. We thank you, God, that you are still in the process and still in the business of cleansing and setting straight and healing and convicting both of sin and also of righteousness. God, we thank you that you are moving among us and we give you permission and we make a request that you would move in us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. And so uh, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Now, the context of that, and just, uh, I'm just going to read about seven verses here from 14. This is the beginning of John 14. Um, this is a, one of the most beautiful, dense sections of Scripture uh, among the Gospels. And Jesus is saying to, uh, to his, his followers, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Then he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And of course, just a short time after this, he's going to be arrested. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there uh, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going, which I love that. because He just drops it out like a hook, like a hook. By the way, and you know where I'm going. And of course, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And then Jesus says the verse we just quoted. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And so the last phrase of this is, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making an exclusive claim here. So far, we've talked about uh, what it means, uh, just, just touch gently on what it means for him to be the way and him to be the truth and him to be the life. Um, we could probably spend a decade on each one of these. There's so much there, and, and sometimes I, I struggle because I feel like I want to go so much further, and yet I feel like God highlights this piece, and it's like, yes, sir, that's what we'll cover. So we've talked about him being the way and the truth and the life and that he actually is those things. He doesn't just take us to those things. He doesn't just provide those things. He is those things. But this last phrase says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Um, I actually bothered to put a title on this, and the title of this message is The Exclusivity of Christ. And we live in a world that where the, the exclusivity would probably not be typically a, a word that we'd say, yes, let's be exclusive. And everybody's going to ex- celebrate. Let's celebrate exclusivity right now. So, but that's, this is what he's saying. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making a very exclusive claim here. This is the core of uh, a core tenet of the Christian faith. This is a key point that some of us, we might try to deny. We might try and wiggle around. We might just ignore it for a while. 
But at the end of it, this is a pretty heavy thing that Jesus is saying. He says, no one. And so um, the, the, the language, I went back and I looked at it, it's, it's actually completely unambiguous. The first word, nothing, is literally nothing. No person, nothing. There is no exceptions. Nothing will come to the Father. And then it says, erkomai, um, it says, arrives, this is, is to, to, it says, um, no one comes to the Father. The, the idea of arriving is what this word is. It's to, something to land here from another place. It arrives. Um, it also can be talked about something that comes into being. It rises up. And it's something that, um, uh, so, or something that is established. So something, uh, it's like, kind of like landing the airplane metaphor, right? So it's like something um, that has arrived, it's after a journey, something that is coming to the fruition, to the fullness of what it is, and something that is established that's going to last. That's kind of the flavor of this, what it means to come to the Father, to arrive at the Father. It's a big, multi-dimensional sort of thing understanding and it says no person no thing nothing whatsoever will go through that arrival process coming into solidness with the father except through me the word translated as through is the greek word dia and the word can be seen as a reference to a place or may more likely through a place or a time or even maybe through a circumstance so it's easy to simply think about as a bridge and so here's a place where we can see jesus as a bridge and he's a bridge from one type of being to another type of being, from one realm to another type of realm, from one circumstance to a different circumstance. Jesus is the bridge. And then, um, and the last word, emo, the last word it's translated is me. And Jesus says me. What stands out to me as we look at this is, I don't know about you, but there's other places in Scripture when Jesus talks about himself and he seems to be talking to about himself in the third person. He'll talk about um, about the Son of Man, right? And if you're listening, or if you're reading that, um, you kind of intuitively understand he's talking about himself as the Son of Man, right? He doesn't say that here. He says, me. Also, completely unambiguous. There's no mystical third person. There's no way to, admit, to interpret it in any other way. Jesus says, me. Nobody, nothing, there is zero anything that will arrive on the journey to the presence of the Father that will be established for all time, be rooted and rise up, like come to its own fruitfulness. Nothing will have that except through me as the bridge. I'm the only bridge. And so if Jesus truly is God in the flesh, then the exclusivity of Jesus being the only way to be reconciled to the Father is an entirely logical extension of the whole of Scripture. Where I'm going is, if Jesus is God, right? Another part of the thing. Jesus is deity. Jesus is, is God in the flesh. And then we can look, and all the way through Scripture, there's this, this exclusivity of the God of the Bible. There is only one, all the way through. Can you guys think of any spot where, where Scripture says, like, the other gods are, are okay? Like, there's lots of gods. I might be the favorite one, but the other ones are okay. They're just not quite as good. No, it's never acceptable. And so, in fact, if you go back, uh, you guys know that uh, uh, the location, first location, Ten Commandments. Just quick quiz. I'm asking this because if somebody asks me this, um, I might not immediately know. So Exodus chapter 20, 
if you want to go there, you can go there, but we're just going to land on just a couple of verses and keep rolling. So the first list, it occurs twice. There's the first list of the Ten Commandments in Scripture. It occurs in Exodus chapter 20. And the very first one says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Exclusive. Right? Zero. No other gods. He excluded every other, every other one. Now the word there, and it says gods, is the word Elohim. And so Elohim is, it's a, it seems to be a rather inclusive word. And so it can be translated, in, in my observation in Scripture, it's usually translated as gods. And honestly, it's even used in reference to the one true God sometimes is Elohim. Um, but it's actually a pretty general word. And it includes rulers, judges, divine ones, angels, which would be messengers, spiritual messengers, or God's lowercase g. And so this is helpful because it expands the exclusivity of devotion that God is speaking to his people. First commandment. It makes his exclusivity even more exclusive because he's saying um, that uh, there are, um, he's saying that no other ruler or judge, divine being, angel, or anything else that you could call a God shall be placed in front of or given a higher position than me, the one true living God. He says there's no room for any of the other ones. And it's also helpful to be reminded that that whole statement is freely acknowledging that they exist. Right? He says there's no other God to be placed here, and the implication is that there are other gods that could be placed there. And we all know that there are lots of voices, both in the natural and also, I'd argue, in the spiritual and soul realms, that would be, that would seek to be rulers, judges, authorities, right? You can also look at Ephesians 6 and get a list there. And divine things, angels, or gods. But the one true God says no. First commandment, no. Say no to them, no. The answer is no. Now, this is uh, placed as the first commandment, and I would argue it's, it must be, therefore, foundational to all the others. And if you don't have to think too hard to see how it would be. And it's also, um, as it's placed as the first commandment, perhaps it is placed there to challenge the first temptation that all of us probably face. Possibly. And it's easy to go there. there. If you go back to the garden, the core of what the serpent was offering and the basis that allowed the temptation to come in the garden was that um, Eve and then Adam had to allow an authority other than God to speak to them and take priority over what God had said. Right? Isn't that what happened? The serpent comes in and says, did God really say this? And then offered an alternative interpretation, and they chose the alternative instead of sticking with the one true God. How well did that work out for them? Not well. Notice that the consequences of what they experienced have been replicated through all of us, right? We're still suffering from sin. Now, I don't believe that we're guilty of their sin. I don't need to be guilty of their sin. I can sin all by myself, thank you, right? We don't have to be guilty of their sin, but the consequences of their sin have continued on. And so God's insistence of exclusivity is not because God is either selfish or because he's snobbish. It's because he loves people and he's calling us to himself because he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. 
and no one comes to him except through Jesus, right? So this, is, this exclusivity is something that goes all the way through Scripture, and it begins, um, uh, well, at the very beginning. And so God's instructions to Adam and Eve in the garden, they were not deceptive as this serpent suggests. Even today, I don't know about some of you, maybe you would ask the question, like, if, if God said that if you eat of that tree, you're going to surely die, right? You remember this? Okay. Where did you come from if they died? If they inst- took a bite of the fruit and they keeled over dead in the moment, where, why are you here? Right? We're all descendants of them. And so one might go back and say, well, I don't know. Was God really telling the truth? And so if Adam and Eve had died like God seemed to say they would, then they wouldn't have been around to have any kids. Now, I suggest that apart from Christ, we remain a part of a dying world. And the world was so filled with life from God that it didn't curl up the moment that sin entered. The reason why it didn't curl up and just go dead that moment is because of the power and the massive amount of energy and life that God poured into the physical universe and it takes away a while for it to burn down. The reason why you're here isn't because he lied. The reason why you're here is because he is so overwhelmingly good that death couldn't kill everything in a moment. God's insistence on exclusivity is because of his heart is to restore the life that he originally gifted to his people at the beginning. There is only one true God. Now, in Genesis 12, following the Tower of Babel, you guys remember that story, God speaks to a man named Abram, and God tells Abram that he will bless Abram and his descendants through his family. God will bless the whole world, right? And then we follow that family line, and it ends up with Jesus. And so the passage invites Abram to literally walk away from every authority that existed in his life up to that point. I might just look at that real quick. This is Genesis chapter 12, and it's the first couple of verses. You can glance there if you want. Um, And in this place, um, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. And it continues on in the message that I just summarized. And so... Literally, he was inviting Abram. He says, if you're going to follow me, what it's, well, the way it's going to work is you get to lay down your inheritance. You get to walk away from your family and the identity and the security and everything that's tied to that. And you get to step out in a direction that you've never gone before and go places that you don't know where you're going, but you're going to have me. Right? That's an, that's an invitation to an exclusive relationship with the one true God. And Abram did it. That's huge. That's why we sing songs about him. Father Abraham had many sons, right? That's, that's, that's why we have these songs. Abram, later Abraham, he learned to trust God above every other ruler, judge, or God. And that would be a whole series of sermons and messages about how he did that, but he did. And so many years later, in that same exact area where the Tower of Babel was built, there were some young captives who had committed their lives also to serving the one true God, and they had their resolve directly challenged. 
In Daniel chapter 3, verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm just quoting these verses, says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Right? And then he gives them one more chance, one more chance when the song sings to bow. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this. As in, it's decided, we're not debating, it's, this, isn't a, this isn't a thing. Even if you think it's a thing, it's not. Because our hearts belong to the one true God. If this be so, as in Nebuchadnezzar's threat, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These guys lived exclusively for the living God. Wow. So inspiring. Now, we like the end of this particular version of this story, right? Or this, in this instance, right? Because you know that they got thrown into, into the fiery furnace. And then it says three went in, and then, but the witness said there were four walking around in the fire, and then three came out, and they didn't even smell like smoke. We have a long history of there's other people who've loved Jesus unequivocally, uncompromisingly, and some of them did not come out of the fiery furnace. Right? Sometimes our faithfulness... Um, is met and God, I believe He will always honor His people, and I believe that uh, even if someone um, walks a path of martyrdom and they lay down their life, it's happening like now. It's not just a history thing. That I believe that God is with His people is when we surrender to Him. Right, He's near to those who are brokenhearted. He doesn't ignore our pain. If you're going to choose to serve a God, He's going to sustain you and carry you through that. It could be that maybe there's people in this room that God will someday put us in the position or allow a position where we have to make that choice. May we have the surrender and the faithfulness to a God to say, yes, I will serve you exclusively. These three young men, they chose to honor God exclusively and he protected them. God, I believe, honors and protects those who honor him. Now, in Ezra... We read another story. Um, this is a little bit of a challenging one. This is Ezra chapter 4. You could read along if you want. I'm going to read just a few verses. But this is another example of the exclusivity, but now uh, the, the Israelites walking out an exclusive relationship with God. Now, we're reading the story of refugees who were released from Babylon and then allowed to return to Jerusalem. And they began to rebuild a temple so they could worship the one true God in the ways that they understood that worship to be. And so the neighbors asked to join in too. Now, at first glance, the following scripture makes these God followers appear very rude. Right? I've, I've wrestled with this passage a little bit the first couple of times I ran into it. Except it might be helpful to remember that these neighbors did not believe in serving one God exclusively. And as I read this passage, you'll notice that they say that they worship the same God, and indeed they did, along with a whole bunch of other gods. And I believe the exclusivity of the Jews here was necessary, or those same people would have been drawn as they often were in the biblical record, and also we all can be. 
to worship more than one God. Here's the passage. Ezra, beginning in ver- chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people noticed that the ones that said, we want to build with you, we like your God. And then, the, and then they said, no, 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 this is one true God. This isn't a, we add him in. They push back. The very next thing is, then the people, same people who wanted to join in, of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And then they even bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the, uh, the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of the reign, they even wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. They sent, so God's insistence of exclusivity is because his heart is to restore the life that he originally gifted to his people at the beginning. There is only one God, and he did not come in many forms. There are not many gods that are valid, There are not many saviors. There's only one. Amen? There's just one. And so the Ten Commandments are a basic description of core truth. I believe all the way through. And and the very first statement is a statement of exclusivity of the God of the Bible, the one true living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God who is, the God who is the I am. And in Jesus' words, the last phrase We've already heard it in John 14, 6 is no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the verse 7, the next verse points at Jesus' deity, that Jesus is Emmanuel, that Jesus is God with us. Because after verse 6, Jesus continues. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. If you know me, you know the Father, right? Now, if you know me, it doesn't necessarily mean you know Heidi. If you know Alex, it doesn't necessarily mean you know me. There's a a depth of unity that Jesus is communicating here. If you've known me, you know the Father, because Jesus and the Father are one. It's a, he's being very unambiguous here. In a world where we teach the idea of sharing and making room for people who believe whatever they want, this assertion directly contradicts the worldview that peace can exist by letting everybody be right. This makes no allowance for any other authority, and Jesus' assertion of exclusivity is either brash arrogance or bold truth, and there isn't room for middle ground, right? Because I don't know about you, even in my life, I've heard the idea that Jesus is a prophet, Jesus is a wise man, Jesus is a good teacher, But if you actually look at what Jesus says, he's either telling the truth or he's dumb. He's either telling the truth or he's an idiot. He's either telling the truth or he's crazy. There isn't isn't really room for him to say the sorts of things that he says and just be wise. It doesn't doesn't add up. We can't get there. 
And so this is a point where we have to choose. Jesus cannot be the, a wise man or even a prophet. Either Jesus really is all, and he really is the only way, or this whole thing just falls apart. And so every one of us is going to face a point of decision at least once in your life. I believe it'll likely come more than once. But at least once in your life, there's going to be a point where you have to make the choice. God is going to bring it to that point where you have to choose. You might not be consciously aware of the decision that you're making in that moment, but you will be choosing because God is a just God. He doesn't just say, ah, I don't like you. I'm not even going to tell you the story, right? He doesn't do that. God is a just God. There will be a point when every single one of us chooses. And then after you make the choice whether to, to serve God and recognize Jesus as his exclusivity or to reject that, no matter what, on which side you land, your, your, your decision is probably going to be challenged throughout your life. For those of you who have chosen the exclusivity of Jesus, has, your, has that been challenged? Yeah, probably with some regularity. And I'm not sure if anybody would raise their hand here, but if somebody has not chosen Jesus, I'm guessing that there's probably points when that's been challenged too. And both of them are not equal and opposite. You can't, it's, it's, this isn't Star Wars. You can't choose the dark side and it's okay or choose the light side and it's okay, right? There's truth, there's lies. There's life, there's death. Death doesn't, right? It's not a viable option. And so my personal determination for me is to choose Christ. Now, at times, I don't get things right. And when I don't, that becomes a very deep reminder of why I needed Jesus in the first place and why I need Jesus today. Because my need doesn't change. My awareness of my need only increases. And as, as God walks and, and calls us to himself as we move through, I don't know about you, but for those of you who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, it's not like we graduate and suddenly like, ha, I'm good now. Part of a mark, I believe, of our, of our maturity in Christ is to recognize that as we go through, it's like, oh, I knew I needed him when I got saved. I had no idea how much more I needed him, right? Now, that's not a statement of insecurity. We are secure in Christ. It's okay. We're secure, but our need for him is profound, and our awareness of that only grows. And so... Today might not be the day that God has brought you to a place where you have to make that decision. It might not be about who Jesus is or what his place is in your life. But it might be that day. It could be that day. And so if this is the day that God is calling you and he's speaking to you about making an exclusive decision, like I'm going to recognize that there is only one God and I'm going actually going to live this out instead of just having an open relationship with God, right? Don't reject his summons. Don't reject it. And marriage, for example, is an exclusive relationship. When it's not an exclusive relationship, it doesn't work well. I believe in scripture that God uses uh, marriage. I believe he not only uh, uses it, but I I think he actually created it as a model for our understanding of, of the intended relationship between humans and God. Hmm.
You guys know that, right? I'm not going to belabor that. You can look at Hosea. Um, if you wanted to look it up, Hosea chapter 2, verses 5 through 10 is a story of, of, of God using the metaphor of a marriage and, and the marriage. And, and of course, the, the message came through Hosea, who's a prophet who was married to an unfaithful woman. And so Hosea didn't just deliver the words of the message, he lived the reality of the message. But there is a point of no return in unfaithfulness. If we choose to be unfaithful to the one true living God, there's a point when he says, okay, you've chosen. But it's not his heart for you. It's not his heart for any of us. If you choose Christ, you choose a living God, and you, we have to choose him exclusively. And it's, it's not a straight path or a wide path. We know that that's the path that leads to destruction, but it's a better path. It's a narrow path. It's a challenging path, but it's a path that leads to life. And things often don't seem crystal clear, but I find that truth in Christ is solid. He doesn't always answer the truth in our heads and give us the information that we're looking for. Sometimes he'll give me answers, but it doesn't come in the form I expected. And so it takes me a while to realize, oh, he did answer that. He just didn't answer it in the way I expected him to answer it. And serving the one true God is not an easy life, but it's a rich life. The people that I know that have served Jesus deeply and exclusively, they have the most interesting lives, strange existences, and they're so beautiful and so powerful and so good. I'm going to hit, I'm going to be really fast and then we're going to close. Scripture also reveals that there's benefits and good things that come from honoring God who is the only true judge, ruler, and God. In Psalm 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, in that psalm, you can look it up. It has a whole long list of benefits right there. But I see three things that I feel like God has highlighted for me in other passages today. One is power, one is provision, one is peace. First one in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, he calls... Jesus called to himself his, his 12 disciples, and it says, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every de- disease and every affliction. This isn't magic. And if God moves in power through you, it's not your power, right? Not your power. But God does move through people, and he does move in power. He does use people, and he does give you authority over demons. They have to leave. It's a real thing. It's not just mental illness. He also um, calls you to walk in authority. He also has us pray for each other and we watch diseases get healed. How many of you have seen somebody get healed? Yeah? That's pretty significant. In this room, inside a culture that says that doesn't happen, at least a third of us know for a fact that it does because we saw it. I have. God does these things for real. Number two is provision. Matthew 6, 31, it says, don't be, Therefore, don't be anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He's really smart that way. 
right? And he says, and so the scripture says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all this other stuff, it's going to come to you. Don't worry about tomorrow. There's enough stuff to worry about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble of its own, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It'll come. Power, and that's provision. And it was material provision. It's not about, I'm going to be so rich and have eight Ferraris. You're going to have what you need. God's going to care for you. He really does it. And the other one is peace. And this is John 14, 27, later in the same chapter that we were drawing from. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. And I don't know about you, but probably most of us are not going hungry very often. We are blessed. And though there are diseases, unlike other places in time and history, we have doctors and medicine and stuff. And God moves, he still heals diseases and all these things. But I would suggest that probably one of the greatest threats to you is peace. And the thing is, is he says, I give you peace, not the way the world gives it. We're going to talk about that a different day because I need to close. But I want you to know that peace is available. Actual peace. Real peace. How many of you had your peace challenged this week? I have. How many had your peace challenged this morning? I have. How many have had your peace challenged in the last hour? Right? How many might be struggling with peace right this minute? Yeah, good. We got one honest person. No, two honest people. Right? You know, God is faithful. He's faithful, and we really can live in peace. It's possible. But it's a different way. It's a different route. It's a different way of existing. And so um, I invite you to stand up with me, right? Stand with me right now if you can, if you're comfortable. If you can't stand, that's okay. Bless you, it's all right. And so earlier I made, a, I made a, just a, a spoken invitation, and that is uh, I want to acknowledge and invite you to acknowledge if God is speaking to you now and saying it's time for you to make an exclusive commitment that there will be no other gods in your life. One God. One God. Can you say that? One God. His name is Jesus. Can you say Jesus? Jesus. In fact, that we, can, we can just speak this together. Jesus, Jesus. You, are the way, you are the way, the truth, and the life. I know that I can't come to the Father except by you. You, Jesus, are my bridge. And so I entrust the weight of my life to you. Now, if you need more prayer, come find me, come find somebody that you trust, and let's talk about it. If you need some, some place where you need some freedom, because sometimes God calls us to, con- to confess things, and it's important. There's times when there was sin in my life, and God would say, you need to go tell this person and confess to them. It wasn't because the person needed to know. It's because I needed to say it, right? And so if there's something in your heart and something you need to get right, then let's go there, right? In the meantime, bless you guys. Chip, would you come and lead us in a closing song?